Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,158 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 26 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. So let's go ahead and look at God's Word this morning. As we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Last week we joined Jesus behind those closed doors with his 12 disciples as he took on the lowliest of all servants and washed their disciples' feet. And he said in chapter 13, verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And today we continue that Passover meal with the disciples behind those closed doors. And our scripture today is John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30, starting on page 1674 of the Pew Bible. So follow along as I read the passage today, starting with verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture, passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to that disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, The one to whom I will give the piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're going to do, about to do, do quickly. But no one at the mill understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus was in charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus, Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. For many years, our educational systems around the world subjected students to a battery of tests to determine their IQ, their intelligence quotient. This quantified it a person's ability to remember facts, think imaginatively, put information together logically, and to ultimately solve problems. The IQ between, became a means of identifying intellectually gifted students that might be challenged, so they might be challenged to maximize their abilities. However, an unfortunate side effect this was it pushed a great many others to the fringes of education. But in 1983, a Harvard University professor, Howard Gardner, proposed a new theory, suggesting that intelligence actually has many different forms. 
For example, someone can be a mathematical genius, but they don't know how to program their home entertainment system. Yet someone who might score the very highest on the, their IQ test can't interact with other people on a social level. So Dr. Gardner recognized the existence of multiple intelligences and reacted strongly against assigning a worth to people based on a single, somewhat arbitrary, chosen kind of intelligence. Instead, there was more to a person than their ability to solve mental puzzles. And for those of us who made the top half of their class look smarter, being in the lower half, realize that not everything is based on IQ, or IQ can be measured in a lot of different ways. But Jesus never placed a supreme value on a person's IQ. He more was concerned about developing their AQ, their acceptance quotients. And he worked with his disciples that fateful night on that very principle. Whereas the IQ qualifies an individual's mental capacity, our AQ measures our ability to accept someone into a relationship. Now, your bulletin insert on the page with the picture of the Last Supper there, the Passover meal, we'll skip the picture for now, but let's move on down to where it talks about acceptance. I define acceptance as one's ability to receive other people and recognize their worth without holding to some predetermined standard or requiring some specific performance from them. And one other author describes this freedom from perspective and those who choose to accept it. Acceptance, it means you are valuable, just as you are. It allows you to be the real you. You aren't forced into somebody else's idea of who you are. It means that your ideas are taken seriously since they reflect who you are. You can talk about how you feel inside and why you feel that way. And you'll know that someone cares about you as a person. I know in today's controversial PC political correct environment, we tend to think the extremes of that. And that's not what we're referring to today. We're referring to you as an individual and our ability to accept each of us as that individual. The first quality of acceptance, exemplified by Jesus as encouraged by him, requires some clarification, lest we misunderstand. First of all, acceptance does not negate discernment. Christian maturity requires discernment. To accept someone is not to blindly accept a person's weaknesses, but rather to overlook those weaknesses when choosing in order to honor that person. It is to demonstrate love regardless of another person's flaws, realizing that we have enough flaws ourselves that we hope and pray that others will overlook in us. Second, acceptance does not deny human sinfulness. On the contrary, acceptance fully considers sinfulness and we choose to receive another person into our fellowship regardless of that. If you're looking for perfect people to whom to have share fellowship with, you'll be a pretty lonely person because none of us are perfect. Third, acceptance does offer unlimited freedom for us to individually open and authentically without fear of rejection. Everyone can be at complete ease knowing that they, by being themselves, 
will not lead to condemnation or rejection of others. If someone's lifestyle is contrary to what God's biblical precepts are in his word, we can still love that person. We can still accept that person without approving of their lifestyle. We have to know the difference. We have to understand the difference that if somebody you feel is living against biblical precepts that you don't agree with and you feel it's not right or best for them according to God's will, we can still love that person. We can still accept that person and still not approve of their chosen lifestyle. We need to realize the separation there. After Jesus rose from washing his disciples' feet, he put on his robes and he taught them about humility. However, he warned last week that not everyone around that table would understand the lesson, much less apply the lesson that he taught. The fact that Jesus had washed the feet of his betrayer would be the subject of his next, next lesson that we're looking at today. Humility not only bows low to serve one another, humility also offers fellowship to those that may betray us, as Jesus did. As we look in verses 18 through 20, Jesus announces someone reclining at the table that evening would not be receiving any of the blessings that he taught about. Instead, one of them who ate that unleavened bread provided by the Son of God would betray him. And the Lord quoted Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food has turned against me. He said, in effect, the betrayer may think that he has cleverly hidden himself incognito, but his treachery was revealed long before he was born. Make no mistake, in today's passage, this was Judas's final warning from Jesus. He gave him all the chances that he could possibly give. Imagine yourself reclining at the table beside Jesus. How would you respond if he pointed out one of your hidden sins and said, this is what will happen if you continue on in your sin? I don't know about you, but I think I would be inclined to repent at that point. Say, no, Lord, save me from my sinfulness. But not Judas. He chose not to. Before the beginning of supper, Judas had already collected his 30 pieces of silver and determined to betray Jesus to the religious authorities. All he had to do was determine the right opportunity to do so. John describes Jesus' inner state as we move, inner, inner state of mind as we move on to verses 20 and 22, as being troubled in spirit. And that's the same Greek word that is, describes Jesus as he stand before Lazarus' tomb before he raised him from the dead. And he wept, and he was in anguish and even angered because of that. I believe the Lord genuinely grieved for Judas's loss. I believe that the love that he held for that betrayer nearly broke his heart that night. You think he invested three plus years into his disciples and to know that one of them was so greedy that he would betray him that night. It broke his heart. Jesus stunned those who were at the table with the revelation of a divine truth. One of the disciples would betray him. 
as the disciples exchanged inquisitive looks, expressed with alarm, I have no doubt that Judas also framed that same surprise as everyone else at that table did. If you look at the picture on their bulletin insert, the picture of Jesus represented in the middle there, and you see on the right-hand side of Jesus, because when they ate, it was a very low table. It wasn't as we see in the painting and the carvings, all the disciples lined up on one side of the table. It was a square table, and they sat on cushions on this low table, and they leaned on their left arm, and they ate with their right hand. And you see John represented on the right-hand side of Jesus there. John often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had such a close relationship with them. So when Jesus said someone would betray him, he leaned back and said, Jesus, who is it? He is that close to Jesus. They could do so because someone, only a very close friend or a family relative, would be able to do that. But it was not an unusual sight to see someone lean back against the person next to him and talk to him at the ancient Near Eastern supper table. Jesus revealed the, John's, the traitor to John with a familiar gesture of friendship. He took that unleavened bread and he dipped it in the bowl. And Judas, who's betrayed on, or portrayed on the right-hand side, Jesus handed him that unleavened bread dipped in either bitter herb paste or lamb stew and handed those, that offering of fellowship to Judas. What we might not realize by just reading the passage is the person on the left-hand side of the host was considered the honored guest. It was sitting on Jesus' left side. It was Judas. And the sign of fellowship would be when the host would offer a fellowship meal, a fellowship serving to one was a sign of fellowship. So Judas was not only in the place of honor, but Jesus, knowing that that night he would betray him, offered him fellowship one last time. The symbolism there is beyond what we can comprehend. If we knew someone was going to betray us that night to death, would we be willing to seat them at the place of honor, to wash their feet, to offer them fellowship meal? Would we be willing to do that? It was Jesus' final act of grace to Judas. He had washed that man's feet, given him the place of honor, and then offered him that fellowship. And we find out after receiving that fellowship piece of bread with stew on it, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25, Judas, the one who betrayed him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Verse 27 is one of the most chilling verses in all of Scripture. Just as willing hearts who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and accept him receive Christ into them, those who reject Jesus Christ is actually receiving Satan into them. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. A chilling verse. Secret sin inevitably warps our mind and twists our own values. 
embezzlers like Judas, and we've seen this even on the local level, they really rarely steal much at first, but pilfering or stealing becomes habitual or ritualized. The thief must then rationalize their sin in the face of that awful prospect of repentance. Driven by their own shame, it drives a wedge between their private thoughts and their public persona. They become two different people. What did James say? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. They split between that internal person they are and their pious public persona. Eventually, the sinner, when they start down this road, accepts their public facade as their true self, saying, this is who I really am, in a desperate attempt to escape that relentless pursuit of shame in their lives. And when they're caught in their sin, as we've seen even locally here at times, the embezzler appears to be shocked. And that's what Judas did that night. And in some ways, they are surprised by the accusation because they've convinced themselves, as Judas did this night, that no one can see their true person that they've concealed long ago. Judas had been cultivating this double life for months and maybe even years as he was part of Jesus' inner fellowship. His charming religious facade kept the seething resentment of greed that he had safely concealed from others. As John wrote a couple messages past, that Judas often stole from the treasury. They didn't know that at the time, but they knew it after the fact. No one suspected Judas's secret sin, much less wondered about his loyalty. They couldn't figure out who was the betrayer among them. Even they, when he received that morsel from Jesus and departed into night without explanation, no one suspected anything. John wrote this, these words some 60 years later, and reflecting back on that fateful night, he realized what had happened and what it all meant. Moreover, the Holy Spirit, as he wrote, penned his, his gospel, spotlighted in his mind the specific details to communicate those profound spiritual truths that night. Jesus' lesson on humility and acceptance by accepting Judas to the place of honor and even offering fellowship was present that night. The Lord washed his feet and gave him a seat of honor and offered him fellowship. But because Jesus was fully human, he had all the emotions, all the weaknesses, all the temptations that we endure. Would we sit there quietly and allow the betrayer to be concealed from everyone else? I'm sure that didn't come easy for Jesus, being fully human yet fully God. Grace is often the costliest gift that we can offer anyone. So what's the application for our passage today? If grace is our defining doctrine as genuine believers, then our ability to accept others is certainly our badge of who we are, our visible test of our belief. Now, I am unreservedly conservative in my theological approach. I find my greatest kinship and friendship with those who are like-minded, as we all do in any area of our lives. 
but I appreciate, and I appreciate those who point out if somebody, especially those who are proclaiming Jesus Christ, are not living according to those principles. However, we must lower our acceptance quotient to be willing to accept others that might not see exactly as we do. We don't have to accept a lifestyle that might be contrary to God's word, but we are to accept individuals with love and the divine truth to win them over. If you look at your bulletin insert on the other side, I've listed here three signs of a falling, falling acceptance quotient. Three indications that grace has not bridged our head to our heart. Now, Putnam here, our fellowship is pretty strong. We look out for each other. We contact each other when they're missing. We help each other out when, when they're in need. And that's great. So it's not that I'm pointing out that we're not doing what we should because for the most part, I think we are. But we could always check ourselves to make sure that our falling AQ, our acceptance quotient, is built back up. The first one is people with a falling acceptance quotient or AQ are unwilling to accept people without maintaining partiality. Accept people without partiality? That's hard to do, but we're called to do it. It happens all the time. The Apostle James referred to this when he admonished those church leaders. If you remember our study in James last fall, James chapter 2, verse 1, he wrote, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention to the good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or sit at my feet on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Now, no one outright rejected the person with dirty clothes as long as they knew what their place was within that fellowship. Similarly today, we often treat people that way deep pockets and get us good seats or positions of leadership, but people with suspicious backgrounds, ones that we're not sure about, that wear that scarlet letter, and we have to check them out before we accept them. A for adultery, or E for emotional trauma, C for being single in some fellowships, or D, God forbid, divorce. Now, once they prove their worth, we might accept them farther into our fellowship, but that's not what the Bible teaches. How wrong, how unlike Christ. We're to accept them into love and fellowship at all times. Second, people with a following AQ are unwilling to accept another's personal lifestyle without criticism. This is easy for us to do, someone that doesn't think the same way as we do, and I'm not referring to matters of morality or doctrine here, but one's personal choice of expression. Now, in some churches, the pastor or the, the priest will wear flowing robes. Some will wear fancy suits with jewelry. 
Some will wear business attire, and others will wear jeans and T-shirts. But as long as Christ is preached and souls are brought into the kingdom, those type of things don't matter. Paul teaches about setting apart people because of what they eat or don't eat. Again, he said, do what your conscience tells you to because that's not in a biblical command. Churches divide over music. Some Christians are unwilling to sit through a service if they don't like the music and it doesn't fit their style. They grouse and complain because they dared sit, they sat through a worship service that they didn't really particularly care for, but while others did. We need to put away any personal preferences like that and be willing to accept others, even if they don't think exactly like we do. Third, a pe people with falling AQ are willing to suffer offenses without holding a grudge, or unwilling to suffer offenses without holding a grudge. People who hold grudges reject others because they don't meet their expectations. They don't do what they expect them to do, to live like they do. Now, I think this attitude might be more characteristic of unbelievers as believers. Now, you, you've probably heard, as I have, well, I don't want to go to church because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Indeed, it is. Every one of us are hypocritical in some manner of life. So invite them in and say, yeah, there's always room for one more because we're all that way. And we don't profess not to be hypocritical. We don't try to be purpose. But come on in and fellowship with us anyway because we accept you as you are. Let's face it, relationships would go much smoother in any organization, but especially in the church if it was filled with perfect people. But the key to acceptance is not perfection, because if you're waiting till somebody meets your expectations, you're loving them conditionally. And Jesus, in all his teaching, says to love unconditionally. Love them because I have loved you. You may not agree with everybody. You may not care for personal styles. That's okay. Love them anyway. That's what really counts in the kingdom of God is accepting. How high is your AQ? How high is your acceptance quotient? That's what our lesson teaches today. Next Sunday, now that Jesus has performed his dastardly deed of betraying Jesus, we see Jesus focusing on his remaining 11 disciples, teaching them about agape, authentic love for each other. So I'd ask you to read John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38 for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word, how you dealt with Judas, who betrayed you, and how you accepted him and offered him fellowship and a place of honor and washed his feet. Let us be willing to accept others and reach him for your kingdom, even if we don't see eye to eye on everything, Father. That's not important. What's important is that we show them love and that they might see the reason to walk with you to walk in fellowship, to become part of your church, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. 
Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.